Great, let's uh, pray together as we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much this afternoon. You're not a God who's silent. Thank you that you are the God who speaks. Thank you that you've given us your word and you've given us your spirit. So we pray this afternoon that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak to us, your church. Lord, please, would you take your word and would you transform us to be the people that you want us to be, to share your heart. Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This afternoon, we're going to talk uh, quite a lot about ambition. Let me just show you one verse. We're going to read the passage in a moment. But let me just show you one verse um, from the passage that we're going to explore this afternoon. In Romans 15, verse 20, Paul says this, It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. So Paul, the man who wrote Romans, says, I have an ambition, a passion that drives me. Now, I think this language of ambition is, is interesting for us. I don't think it's something we talk about very much in church. That there's loads of talk about ambition in the world, right? We're supposed to be ambitious. For, from the, the childhood question, what do you want to be when you grow up? To the relentless anthems of our age that tell us to be ambitious. So we were watching uh, the musical Hamilton the other night. And it's the story of people driven by an ambition, an ambition for power to be in the room where it happens. And I guess most of us have this sense that probably the Bible thinks that that sort of ambition is not right. And that would be true. The Bible condemns this pursuit of selfish ambition. So to relentlessly pursue my dreams for my personal glory is a profoundly wrong way to live my life, according to the Bible. And you know, sadly, that sort of selfish ambition can creep into the church. Even within the church, there can be the desire to pursue personal glory. And so I guess it's not surprising that the whole notion of ambition, perhaps, is something we try to avoid. It's as if ambition has sort of become a bit of a dirty word. But you know what? To chuck out the idea of ambition altogether would be a big mistake. You see, here's what happens, right? We say as Christians, oh, no, we're not supposed to be ambitious. We're not supposed to pursue dreams and things like that. So uh, we chuck all of that out the window. But the danger is that we turn being a Christian into having small ambitions and sort of trudging through life, not really expecting that much not really having any dreams until we die. But you know what? If the Bible condemns selfish ambition and says, don't go that way, the Bible also says, don't be people of no ambition. It absolutely challenges us and encourages us to develop some gospel ambition. And that's what we're going to see as we listen to the, the Apostle Paul talk about his life. 
we're going to see a man who was relentless in his pursuit of gospel ambition. That is, we're going to be challenged to think bigger, to dream bigger, to work harder, to pursue more, to enlarge our expectations of what God might do through us. And you know, that sort of ambition is terrific. But it can be sadly lacking in the church. In fact, you know what? It can be sadly lacking in my own heart. So the answer to selfish ambition is not no ambition, it's rather to pursue gospel ambition. And that's what we're going to explore in Romans 15. We're going to get a good dose of gospel ambition to challenge us and to encourage us in how we live. Now let's just uh, think about where we are in the letter. In many ways, Paul has finished the main content of what he wants to say in this letter. He wrote to them, he says, um, when verse 14, he, let me read verses 14. I'm, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another, yet I've written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again. So Paul says, look, you're doing well. You're you're a church who's going the right direction, and I've written to remind you of the gospel. That's been the content of his letter. And so in chapters 1 to 11, he spelled out again, what is the gospel? And he spelled out so clearly that all humanity is sinful before God. That's chapters 1 to 3. All humanity is deserving of God's right punishment for sin. But God in his great love has made a way through Jesus and his death on the cross to make sinners righteous. That is to put us right with God, to forgive all of our sin, to turn God's anger aside. That's the gospel. That by faith we can receive this gift of a right relationship with God. That we can receive peace with God. That we can be made new. That there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That we're now God's children. This is the gospel that we believe. That's what Paul has been talking about in the book of Romans. Do you believe that gospel? Has that gospel gripped you? Are you living by faith? Do you know that Jesus died on a cross for you so that you could receive God's forgiveness and love rather than God's wrath and punishment that our sin deserves? So he he spelled out the gospel and then in chapters 12 to 15 he's been talking about what does it look like to live out the gospel. In view of that mercy, what are we supposed to live? And he's shown us that To live out the gospel will be to live a life that's dominated by love in every area of life. And so that's kind of his content. Chapters 1 to 11, this is the gospel. Chapters 12 to 15, this is how you live out the gospel. And now he's sort of finished. He's kind of wrapping up. But he's not quite done. And what, what we're about to read is where Paul gets a bit more personal 
And we see a window into what makes him tick. And he doesn't write this just out of interest, just kind of for the sake of it. He writes it so that the church in Rome will get on board with the mission that he's on. He's writing to recruit them to this gospel mission. And so let's listen. As the passage is read, it's quite a long passage, but I want you to listen out for the sense of gospel ambition. Listen out for a sense of momentum, a sense of movement in what Paul says. And then we're going to think about how that challenges us about the way that we live our lives and the things that we hold to be important. But let's hear God's word read. Romans chapter 15, starting at verse 14. I myself am convinced, brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled of knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me this priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favourably received by the Lord's people there, so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and that in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you. Amen. Most of us know what it feels like to start something with massive enthusiasm and passion and energy and to throw yourself at it, but then as time goes on to find yourself becoming tired and slowing down and eventually you sort of grind to a halt. It's a bit like one of those children's toys that you put fresh batteries in and it kind of 
goes at 100 miles an hour around the house, loud music and lights flashing. But as the battery wears down, it, it slows, the music goes all weird, and the lights get dim uh, until eventually it just stops. And you know, sometimes being a Christian can feel quite a lot like that, can't it? There are those times when you maybe you feel excited about Jesus and, and it feels like your batteries are fully charged and you think, wow, it's just amazing, this gospel that he loves me and he gave himself for me, this is amazing. To live for Jesus, this is the best thing ever. And I want to do anything for you and I'll give everything for you. And, and we, we feel excited, but then as time goes on, it's like our batteries get drained. We feel the charge kind of seeps away and life gets hard and we struggle until eventually we find that we've ground to a halt. And look, it may be this afternoon that there are people who you're joining us this afternoon and you've ground to a halt as a Christian. You know, you sort of, well, perhaps you just slowed right down and, and you feel stuck. Well, I'm praying this afternoon that God might reignite within us a excitement about what it means to be one of his people. I really hope this afternoon won't be a crushing burden to you, but will instead be an exciting vision for you to get hold of as we think about what it means to live with gospel ambition. When you read about Paul and you read what he wrote in Romans 15, I mean, it is quite extraordinary, isn't it? If you take the... um, the battery analogy, he's like the Duracell bunny. You, you remember those adverts where you've got the Duracell bunny, you put a Duracell battery in and it just keeps going and going and all the other bunnies with other batteries, they fall over by the side of the road. But the Duracell bunny just keeps going. Well, that, I mean, that's what Paul is like. He just seems to keep going. He, he's a man with a mission and he's not slowing down. But he doesn't write this stuff so that we'll all go, oh, wow, Paul, aren't you amazing? You're so heroic. Instead, he writes this stuff because he wants to recruit this church in Rome that he's writing to. He wants to recruit them to the mission. He, he wants to say to them, come and share this mission with me. He wants them to join him. As they understand the gospel and as they understand what it means to live out the gospel, that they might let that shape all of their lives. And now here we are, hundreds of years later, reading the same words and the same challenge comes to us. Will we get on board with this mission? Will we join him? And so as we have this window into Paul, I want us to peer through the window and to see what does it look like to live with gospel ambition? What is it that makes someone tick who lives this way? And we're going to see five things. We'll go through these um, fairly quickly in order to see what, what does it mean to live with gospel ambition. Firstly, people with gospel ambition know the privilege. So if you look um, again at verse 15, I, Paul writes, I've written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. When Paul thinks about what he's doing and his life and his task, He traces it back to the grace God gave him. Now, that's interesting, right? Because we tend to use the word grace to talk about the way God saves us. 
you know, so here I am in my sin, deserving God's punishment, but God in his grace sent Jesus to die and save me. And so we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And we, we, we love the grace of God. And, and that's ab- all of that is absolutely true. But for Paul, the grace of God is bigger than that. It isn't just the grace that saves him. It is the grace that then gives him this work to do. It's a gift of God's grace. So you can sort of imagine Paul writing a second verse to that hymn, Amazing Grace, that goes, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that gives a work to me a task to share that grace of Christ that others might be set free. Yeah, amazing grace that saves me, but then amazing grace that would include me in God's plan for this world. Amazing grace. And Paul says this grace has made him a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Do you know, there was a time before Paul met Jesus when his life's mission was to destroy the church, to persecute Christians, chuck them in jail and kill them if he could. But then Paul met Jesus and Jesus, by his grace, saved Paul and forgave Paul. And then by his grace said to Paul, now you will, you will take my name, my gospel, to the Gentiles, to the far ends of the world. And Paul says, what grace that would use me? God didn't choose to use Paul because he was so wonderful and so good. He chose to use Paul because of his grace. And now Paul has this amazing privilege. And, and so highly does Paul think of this privilege that he talks about it in verse 16. Look at the end of verse 16. It says, God gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Why on earth does Paul talk about the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel? Well, when he talks about priests, we're immediately thinking of the temple in the Old Testament. That was the center of worship. That was where God's people came to worship. There were loads of people there. It was a magnificent building and it's the place where people came to worship and make offerings to God. But there was one person in the temple who was most important. Sometimes sports teams talk about their MVP, their most valuable player. Well, the MVP the most valuable player in the temple was the priest. You see, the priest was the key figure. The priest had the great privilege of offering sacrifices to God and of bringing the people to him. It was a privilege. I mean, it was like an extraordinary privilege to be a priest. Now, since those days, Jesus has come, and Jesus has come as the perfect priest. He is the ultimate MVP. He is the one who offers the perfect sacrifice to bring us to God so that there is no need for priests and sacrifices anymore. But Paul says, but this work I've been given is like being a priest again. It's the privilege of bringing people to God in worship, of taking this news of Jesus and saying to people, 
Trust in Jesus. And as they trust in him, those people come to worship God. And so even the language that Paul uses is not the language of a burn, I've got this job to do. He says, I have this priestly duty. That's how he views himself. Now, of course, we're not all the Apostle Paul. We don't all have the same task. We didn't all meet Jesus and be given this specific job of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. But each of us, if we've experienced the grace of God, have been given by God's grace work to do. And we've been given priestly work to do. See, in other places in the New Testament, we're told told that all Christians now are priests. All of us have this privilege of being in God's service. Now, this is an amazing thing to see ourselves like this. So you walk into your workplace on Monday morning. Well, you probably don't because you're on working at home. But imagine you were walking into the office on Monday morning. You are a priest walking into that office. That's who you are. It's your privilege to walk in and to represent God to the people in your office, in your flat, in your family, perhaps in this world, that we are to go and to be priests in this world so that people who do not worship God might come to worship God so that they might become an offering to God. It is a privilege to serve God. And that's why in verse 17, Paul says, therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. Paul says, this is my joy, this privilege to serve God. This is my boast. This is my glory. Do you know what? Sometimes I I lose sight of the privilege of serving God. And we will only ever be ambitious for the gospel if we see what a privilege it is to serve him. All too often I think we see being a Christian as a burden and talking to other people about him as, oh, as, as something we have to do. Oh, that God would help us to see the privilege. Picture yourself as a priest by God's grace given work to do to serve him. But of course, we might say, well, how on earth can I do that? I can't do that. I feel so inadequate. I don't have the power to do that. How could I be a priest in my workplace? I I, I can't do this. I can't do anything useful. I'm hopeless. Well, that's why the second thing is that people with gospel ambition know the power. They know the power of God. We will have very limited ambition if we think it all depends on us. If we look at ourselves, we'll say, oh man, I'm not going to achieve much. I'm not up to much. I've not got much to offer. And we'll have limited ambitions and we won't attempt anything particularly dramatic or exciting because we think, well, I I can't. But look at Paul. When Paul thinks about this work that he's been given to do, he knows that it's not his work. It's not his power. Yes, he will do words, uh, do actions and speak words. But as he does that, it is Christ who works through him. So let me just read from verse 18. He says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done. 
by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. Paul says, this power is not mine. Don't be impressed by me. Don't be impressed by the things that I've done. No, as I have preached, it is God's power that's accompanied my preaching. And it's that power that gives us great gospel ambition. Our gospel ambition will grow as we see the power of God that is for us. And so Paul talks about what Christ has accomplished. Now notice, this is very important. Paul doesn't put his feet up and say, well, great, it's God's power, I don't need to do anything. No, Paul still needs to speak and act. There are still things for him to do, but the power comes from God. And so Paul talks in verse 19 about power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. And when you read about the life of Paul in the book of Acts, there are amazing signs and wonders, miracles that accompanied his preaching. It was very clear that the power of God was at work. And that power hasn't changed. And we may say, oh, well, it's okay because, you know, for them, because we'd love to see some signs and wonders. Listen, signs and wonders, God is still as able to do that today as he's ever been. And if that is what the gospel is, if that is what is needed in London for the gospel to advance, then God will give signs and wonders. It is not our place to demand what God does and what God doesn't do. Instead, we say, God, please, in our weakness, would you fill us with your power to do your work? God is able to do what is necessary to bring people to him. It is a demonstration of his power. So as we think of the privilege of serving God, we also need to think of the power that's available to us. I think this is one of our problems. I think we have a very small view of God's power. Can I, can I say and, and challenge us as a church? When was the last time we prayed that the power of God would fill us and equip us to serve him? Of course our ambition will be small if it rests on us. I mean, look at us. But when we get lift our eyes and we see the power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that same power that is for us, oh God, please pour out your power on us as a church that we might go with massive ambition as to what God can do. And that gospel ambition will then be driven by a sense of the need. That's the third thing. The need. People with gospel ambition know the need that there is all around us. That's why Paul says in verse 20, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so I'd not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it's written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Do you see that Paul aches for people who don't know Christ? My ambition is just to find people who don't know Jesus and to tell them. He can't bear the thought of people who would live and die without knowing Christ. It is that that fuels his ambition. This doesn't mean that we should only ever share the gospel with people who've never ever heard of Christ. That was Paul's particular work. That was his particular ministry. But we live in a city of millions of people who don't know Christ. 
They don't know the God who loved them. They don't know the amazing news of forgiveness through Jesus. They don't know that there is a way for sin to be forgiven. They don't know that there is a way to know God and to find peace and freedom and joy. They don't know it. And we need to feel that need because our ambition will only be as big as the need that we see. See, no gospel, no um, ambitious entrepreneur says, oh, that'll do. I'm satisfied. One of the marks of ambitious people is that they're not satisfied because they know there's more to do. Ambitious people are always wanting more, always wanting to do more. And if we're going to be people of gospel ambition, then we need to lift our eyes and see the massive need there is in London. It's not okay. And the danger is that we sort of go, oh, well, Globe Church is, is great. You know, we've got you know, maybe 150 people coming on a Sunday. Isn't that terrific? Um, aren't we doing well? It's just amazing what God's doing. And we say, it's not enough. It can't be enough. It's tiny. We are a tiny fraction of this city. And even if you put all the churches together, we are a tiny fraction. It's not enough. And we cannot be satisfied with it. We cannot say it's okay. It's not. There are people who need to know. And we've got to feel this ambition. We've got to feel this need. There are people who are living and dying and heading for eternity in hell. And we have to share Jesus with them. That's the privilege and the power and the need. It's all there and it wells up to be an ambition that God would use us to do more. We cannot be satisfied. We cannot pat ourselves on the back and say, well, aren't we doing well? There's more to be done. Now, I know that when we stop to feel, really think about this, it, it can become crushing to us. And one of the reasons we sort of shut ourselves off from this is it can become slightly overwhelming to think of that. I I understand that. And God's desire is not that we should be crushed. Remember, it's his work and it's his power. But it is right sometimes to embrace that need and to feel it. Oh, that we'd be a church. Father, please make us a church who are moved by the need of the people we see around us. And the fourth thing then that we see about gospel ambition, people with gospel ambition, they make plans. They don't just sit around and wait for things to happen. They make plans. This is what Paul is doing in verse 23. He's got all sorts of plans, do you see? Verse 23 is now no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you all passing through and that you'll assist me on my journey there. And after I've enjoyed your company for a while, he says, I've got some plans. I'm hoping to head to Spain, but I'm going to kind of drop in on you on the way. I've been longing to come for you for a long time, so I'm I'm making plans. And then he talks about his immediate plans, that before he does that, he's actually on his way to Jerusalem. He's got to go there because the church in Jerusalem is in massive financial need. So he's taken up this offering, and he's going to take the money to the church in Jerusalem to support them because he says his gospel ambition says that The Gentiles and the Jews need to be united with one another. And so it's right that the Gentiles should give money to the Jewish Christians and all of this sort of stuff. He's planning all the time. And then he says, verse 28, so after I've completed this task, have made sure that they've received the contribution, I'll then go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I'll come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. 
So Paul's got it set out. He's got a timetable set out. He's thinking about it. He's not just drifting through life going, oh, let's see what happens. Oh, and now I'm here. Maybe I'll go over here next. And then I've, he, He's got a plan of what he wants to do. And people with gospel ambition make plans. They think strategically. They think, how can I use my time? What, what are my longings? What are my gifts? What are my desires? How could I use my time? And I want to encourage us, if we're going to be people with gospel ambition, who see the privilege, the power, the need, that will be then people who make plans. What are you going to do with your life? What's your plan? What would you love to do? Where would you love to go? How would you love for God to use you? What are the gifts that God's given? Begin to set some stuff out. You can't know everything, but begin to make some plans. There's nothing wrong with making plans. In fact, it's part of gospel ambition. It may be that some of you say, actually, my plan is, if, um, is to, I think I should stay long-term in London. I think I should stay and help the church in London to grow and to flourish. I could do that by the job that I've got. It's a good job, so I could probably stay and help to, to be involved in gospel work in London, at Globe Church and all that sort of stuff. But others of you will say, well, now, my plan is to move on from Globe Church and I'm going to find a... You know, I'd love to find a church where we could go and really get stuck in and, and help them. And others might say, well, actually, I'd love to do some more training, so I'm going to plan to, to do some more training. Or I'm going to plan to go and do this. Or I'm going to plan to learn this. But we make our plans with gospel ambition. You see, the danger is that either we make no plans or we make plans just that are selfish. Oh, I'd love to live on an island where no one else lives. That's not a particularly gospel ambitious plan might be nice but the question we're asking is how can I make plans what am I going to do so what are you going to do with your life make some plans it's good to plan but then the fifth thing is that people with gospel ambition submit themselves to God so look how he finishes. He makes these plans. He says, these are my plans. But then he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there, so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. So Paul says, I've got these plans, but he's not so arrogant as just to say, fine, that's what I'm going to do. Instead, he says, now would you pray? Pray that God would help me to fulfill these plans and to submit himself, particularly where he talks there about by God's will that I might come to you. Do you know the really funny thing? I guess it's not particularly funny, but the strange thing is that we know how this panned out. <laughs> Paul's on his journey to Jerusalem. On the way, he meets this guy called Agabus. He's a prophet, and Agabus says to him, don't go to Jerusalem. Whatever you do, don't go there. Because when you get there, they're going to bind you up and hand you over to the, to the uh, authorities. They're going to arrest you and throw you in prison. And so all the Christians start saying to Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul says, no, I, I need to go to Jerusalem. And he says this amazing thing. He says, I'm willing to die if only I might complete this task. So he says, I, I, I'm going to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he is arrested. 
And he is thrown into prison and people try and kill him and they try and take his life. But again and again, he's rescued. And he spends several years in prison and on trial. And it must have been so frustrating when he had these plans, but now they seem to be thwarted. And then eventually he gets, as a prisoner, he gets put on this boat to go to Rome. And then there's a big storm and there's a shipwreck and he nearly drowns in the shipwreck. But he escapes from the shipwreck, gets onto land and he's bitten by a snake. And it looks like he's going to die but he doesn't die and eventually he gets to Rome as a prisoner. And so you've got these plans that Paul's made, but it doesn't turn out quite the way he thought it was going to. He does get to Rome, but it doesn't turn out like he thought. But because Paul is submitting his plans to God, he doesn't freak when it goes wrong. When, when Agabus says, don't go to Jerusalem, he doesn't freak out. When he gets arrested in Jerusalem, he doesn't freak out. When the ship begins to sink, he doesn't freak out. When the snake bites his hand, he doesn't freak out. He keeps saying, no, God's in control. I, I trust him. I submit my plans to him, and I'm his to do whatever he wants. And people with gospel ambition, they make their plans, but they submit themselves to God. And when their plans don't work out, they say, but God's will will be done. Not my will, but yours be done. And that's how Paul lives his life. And the danger is that some of us are so obsessed with our plans that we're not willing to submit them to God and allow God to change them. But the other danger is that we're so submissive that we never make any plans. And so this is how you live your life. Plan and pray. Plan and submit. And we surrender ourselves to God. We're going to sing in just a moment the words of the hymn that says, all to Jesus I surrender. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. That is, a, that is a song of gospel ambition. I submit myself to you. I see the privilege. I know the power. I see the need. I've made plans, but I submit myself to you. Oh, that we would be a church with massive gospel ambition because we surrender ourselves to Jesus there is no better way to live there is no safer place to be let's bow our heads and pray Heavenly Father we ask that you would please help us help us to see the privilege of belonging to you the privilege of being part of this mission help us to see the power that's available to us fill us with power to serve you pray that we'd see the need be moved by those who don't know you that we'd make plans, sensible, wise plans, ambitious plans, and surrender those plans to you. Lord, give us ambition, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.